From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People are lining up to be vaccinated against COVID-19, and some have questions or concerns. Here to help us understand what's important to know about COVID vaccination is Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate, where he is Professor of Medicine and Microbiology and Immunology. He also led some of the trials for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Thanks for having me back, Amber. So once a person is vaccinated, is that going to protect them from getting the coronavirus at all or just from getting a severe case? So right, the way the trials were designed, they were designed to see if the vaccine could prevent people from getting COVID, so getting the disease. Uh, they weren't necessarily designed to show that they prevent someone from getting infected and they weren't designed to necessarily demonstrate whether or not someone who's vaccinated could transmit to somebody else. And so, you know, what we have are, we have three vaccines that are currently under emergency use authorization in the United States, all of which have been shown to be highly effective at preventing people from having uh, moderate to severe COVID, uh, from being hospitalized from COVID, and uh, from preventing uh, death from COVID. So we don't know yet for sure whether these are working to, to prevent the spread from person to person. We, we don't know definitively, but there is some information that is coming to light, which uh, shows that the vaccines seem to have the potential to reduce somebody's infectiousness. And, you know, I, I've kind of mentioned this before that I, I think it's, it is scientifically plausible that those vaccine, that these vaccines would have that have that impact because the same by the same mechanism that they work to reduce a person's risk of becoming sick, it's the same mechanism that would reduce that person's ability to transmit to somebody else if they were infected. And that mechanism is basically lowering the amount of virus that is in a person or lowering the viral burden in that person because the viral burden would contribute to, to both of those uh, outcomes, making somebody sick and making somebody an efficient transmitter of the virus to someone else. So the studies are ongoing, um, but uh, I, I have a feeling that these vaccines are gonna, are gonna show they have some impact on uh, limiting a person's infectiousness. Now we're hearing about all of these new variants of this uh, coronavirus. Do we know yet whether these vaccines that are uh, approved for use right now are going to be effective against these new variants? So the uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, vaccine actually was tested in a number of different locations to include the United States, Brazil, and South Africa. We know that the predominant variant in the United States was the original variant. So it was the variant from China. Uh, and then we also know that in South Africa and Brazil, at the time that the trials were being done, those variants were the predominant virus that was circulating at the time. And so what you see is that with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, overall, it had a 66% efficacy at um, reducing the risk of moderate to severe COVID and the people who received it compared to the people um, who received uh, placebo. But if you look at in detail on a country by country, in the United States, that number was actually 
more than 70%. And when you look at Brazil and you look at South Africa, the number is closer to in the 50 to 60% range. So there definitely is uh, a difference. But the, the good news is it wasn't zero, right? So these vaccines are still uh, have uh, partial efficacy against these variants and they can still be a very uh, powerful tool in uh, preventing uh, disease caused by infection with with one of the variants. And just so people have some context, you know, the annual influenza vaccine, which has a huge public health benefit, that efficacy is only about 45%. So COVID vaccines are are higher than flu as it relates to, um, you know, preventing uh, preventing the, the COVID variants. Now, in terms of these variants, is there any way, can we stop a coronavirus from mutating? Or is that just their nature? It's their nature. So all viruses, as they replicate, all viruses have the potential for mutation. And the type of virus that a coronavirus is, so it's an RNA virus, which is different than a DNA virus, but these RNA viruses are known for having high rates of mutation. Um, now, coronaviruses are, are kind of interesting in that uh, among all RNA viruses, their mutation rate is actually lower, uh, and they also have the ability to what we call proofread, right? So they have the ability that as replication is occurring, if there is an error in the genetic code, uh, they can actually proofread and correct as they're going along. So, you know, the hope early on was that because of these two characteristics, the virus would actually be stable and give us a chance to develop therapies and, and vaccines. And it was for a while, but, you know, this is, it's expected. This is just what viruses, you know, do. It's one of the reasons why, you know, for example, developing an HIV vaccine has been so difficult. It's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we need new influenza vaccines every year because the virus is, you know, the virus is adapting and the virus is, is changing. Um, I, I would say, because I, I think it's important to know, um, not all mutations are a bad thing. I mean, sometimes viruses can evolve and mutate um, to be less severe. You know, they don't always evolve or mutate to be more severe. And so there are some people who think that over time, as SARS-CoV-2 continues to circulate and continues to mutate, that it's going to mutate itself towards being more of a common cold type virus than it is a pandemic killer. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. So some people think they can avoid getting covid by not getting a vaccine themselves, but by relying on others around them to be vaccinated. What do you say to that line of thinking? So, you know, that that brings up the concept of herd immunity, right? So that is the idea that, uh, you know, how you have a group of people who are in the same geographic location at the same time, uh, you have a significant percentage of them who are immune. Um, such that even those people who are not immune, they are still getting some level of protection against the virus because um, the level of immunity in the general population is so high. And you can achieve that through two different ways. Like one way you could achieve it is through natural infection, right? So you just let the virus, in this case, virus kind of blow through the population, infect everyone it's going to infect and, and do it that way. 
some people have proposed that that was what should have been done uh, for COVID. I think that's a horrible idea, and I'm glad that no one really took it seriously. Uh, the other way to do it is to create herd immunity through vaccination, through immunization. And that's what we do with, you know, what we did with polio and what we do with measles and uh, smallpox and these other vaccine preventable diseases is that, you know, we mandate vaccination. We vaccinate so many people that uh, the disease essentially goes away. But that can be tenuous, right? Because we see that um, we've seen with measles in the recent past that when you have groups of people, uh, you know, the virus is still around. And when you have groups of people who refuse to vaccinate, then the virus is presented with an opportunity to, um, you know, re come back again. Uh, and, um, and then it has, you know, it can impact people who are either, um, you know, have medical conditions that don't allow them to get vaccinated or they're not old enough to get vaccinated. And so that's, you know, that's what, that's what happens. And so, um, and so what I would say to those you know, to those people is, um, you know, that I agree that the concept of herd immunity is a good thing. Um, and I would, uh, but we, you know, we've only vaccinated a very small percent of our country right now. And so we are very far away from achieving herd immunity. And, uh, you know, I, I would suggest that people consider being part of that herd immunity and getting, uh, you know, getting vaccinated versus taking their chances of being uh, being infected and not being protected. So once people start getting vaccinated, what can they do? Uh, how can they get together again with friends? And do they have to still wear masks? So the CDC has just uh, just changed some of their guidance or updated some of their guidance to address this very issue. It's you know, it's people should read it. It's on their website. It's kind of nuanced and it's a little complex. Um, but basically what they're saying is that if you have groups of people, if you have a group of people who are all fully immunized, so they've received all the doses of vaccine that they need to receive, and it's more than two weeks from the last dose of vaccine, if you have a group of people who are all immunized, then it is possible to get together, uh, be within six feet of one another, and not wear masks. They've also said that if you have uh, people who are not immunized from the same family, and that if they are at low risk of a bad outcome, if they do get infected, and they want to get together with people who are vaccinated, then you could also do that. But when you start mixing and matching households and you have people who are at risk of a bad outcome of COVID, let's say they're older or they have high blood pressure or they're obese or diabetes, then it starts getting a little dicey and it's really not recommended that uh, you start mixing and matching um, vaccinated and unvaccinated and masked and unmasked. I mean, essentially, unless you know every person in the group <laughs> and you know what their risk of a bad outcome of COVID is, and you know that they've been fully immunized, you should continue to be practicing social distancing and wearing, uh, you know, wearing a mask. But, but I think what the, you know, what the CDC is communicating with this policy is that, um, you know, we, that they believe that if people are fully vaccinated, that their risk of getting infected or passing the infection to someone else 
or getting sick if they do get infected, that that risk is uh, very, very low. So low that they are comfortable with saying you can gather um, without masks. And so I, I, I think that people should look at this as a real motivator to consider getting, um, you know, getting vaccinated if they haven't, uh, if they haven't done it yet. It's going to allow them to have social interactions that they really should not be having if they're not vaccinated. And, and you know, some people may do that, but that places them at risk for infection, which places them at risk of getting sick and dying or infecting somebody else and that person getting sick and dying. But it sounds like what you're saying is as more people become vaccinated, we're going to get closer to life like it was before. I think so. I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, if we were able to, so to achieve herd immunity at a national level, we're going to need the population to remain, you know, more than 80% of the population will need to remain immune. I say re remain immune because, you know, we don't know how long this immunity is going to last from vaccines, right? That's why the trials are multiple years in duration. And so, um, it's possible we may need to have a booster strategy, but whatever the strategy is, if 80% of the population is immune and we achieve herd immunity, then even those people who aren't vaccinated are going to benefit from that, like we've just discussed. And yes, it will be possible for us to, um, you know, in the community, go back to uh, uh, the normal that we, you know, remember from, you know, 2019, or at least, you know, close to that. Um, I mean, at a minimum, it would be it would be great to have universal in-person learning again. It would be great to have uh, businesses, you know, universally open again, and you know, restaurants and bars and sporting events and cultural events. I mean, that would be that would be great because all of those things they have their own individual price and and, and toll associated with not being able to to happen. And so. I think we could do that if we if we get enough people in the country willing to get vaccinated. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more important information about coronavirus vaccination after this short break. This is your host, Amber Smith, for Upstate's HealthLink on Air, along with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. We're talking about vaccines for COVID-19. I'd like to ask you to describe how the vaccines differ from one another. How are they each designed to work? So uh, the three vaccines that are currently available under emergency use authorization, two of them are what we call messenger RNA vaccines. That's the Pfizer and the Moderna products. And then one is what we call a viral vectored vaccine. That is the Johnson & Johnson or the Janssen um, product. Now, what's similar between the two is that they're all trying to do, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to get the body, the body's immune uh, immune system, to respond to a part of the virus that we call the spike protein. So you, you can so SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID, you can imagine it like a tennis ball with 40 pushpins pushed in it. <laughs> and each of those pushpins, which are little projections, right? Those, those are called spike proteins. And the spike protein is required for that virus to attach us to a cell in our body that it wants to infect, like it could be a cell in our nose or our lung or our kidney. So the spike protein 
finds that cell, uses the spike to attach to the cell, and then that allows it to get into the cell. So the idea is that if you can develop an immune response against that spike protein, you can prevent that interaction from occurring and prevent infection and lower the amount of virus in a person's body so that they don't get sick and maybe, as we've discussed, maybe not be able to transmit to somebody else. So all these vaccines are really focused on having the body create an immune response against that spike protein. Now, the way that the messenger RNA vaccines work is what they said was they said, well, listen, let's look at what is the genetic code that tells the virus to make a spike protein? And they figured out what that was and they made it. And then they put it in this thing called a lipid nanoparticle. You can think of the lipid nanoparticle as like a car and the spike protein is the passenger. And so the vaccine is basically the lipid nanoparticle with the messenger RNA inside and some salts and some sugar. They inject that into the person's arm. It goes into muscle cells and some of our immune cells. And the cells recognize the messenger RNA code and they say, oh, we're supposed to make spike protein. So the, our own cells will then make the spike protein. The body will recognize it as not supposed to be there and foreign and it will create an immune response. So you now have built your immune army, if you will, so that the next time you're exposed, that army is gonna quickly rush to the virus and neutralize the virus. Now, the difference between the Johnson & Johnson product and, and the Pfizer and Moderna product is that in the case of Johnson & Johnson, the car is not a lipid nanoparticle. The car is a virus called this adenovirus 26, and it's a common cold virus that occurs in humans. And so what they do is they, they take that genetic code, they incorporate it into this virus, and then the virus is injected into the person. The virus carries that code into our cells. The cells then reads the code, makes spike protein, and the same thing happens. You generate an immune response. So that's that's kind of the, the differences in how they work. You know, the the, the can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Well, when you talk about uh, the virus, adenovirus, yeah. this is not the coronavirus. This is not the virus that causes this COVID nineteen no. disease. This is an uh, in, entirely different. Okay. Exactly. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. This is uh, this is just a a common virus that's found in humans and causes you know runny nose and upper respiratory infections, and so they uh, they harness the you know, because they know that it's a it's a relatively harmless virus, they 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 take that and and they use it as a carrier for that one little component of the um, of the uh, of the SARS-CoV-2 or the not well, even of, yeah. of the Moderna and the Pfizer and the Johnson and Johnson. Which of these vaccines works the best, or are they so similar in effectiveness that it doesn't really matter? Yeah, you know, so from a safety perspective, they're very similar. Um, you know, they all are going to cause some, uh, you know, some mild to moderate pain where you get the injection, just like, you know, people get vaccinated all the time, tetanus and flu and these sorts of things. So it's the same kind of experience. Um, some people will have headache and fatigue. Some people have muscle aches. Some people have joint pain. About one out of 10 to two out of 10 people will have fever. But the good news is, if it's going to happen, it happens very quickly, so you can plan for it. The other good news is that if it does happen to you, because it doesn't happen to everybody, but if it does, 
um, it goes away very quickly. So within a day or two, it's going to, um, the symptoms are gonna go away. And so people are tolerating these vaccines very well. But in terms of how, how it works, so if you look at the vaccine's ability to prevent death from COVID, to prevent hospitalization, to prevent severe disease, or even moderate disease, they're all very, very similar, and they have high rates of effectiveness against doing that. Head-to-head -head comparison is a little difficult because the Moderna and Pfizer trials were designed a little bit differently than the Johnson & Johnson trial. The Moderna and Pfizer trials were designed to look at the ability to prevent any COVID of any disease severity, whereas the Johnson & Johnson trial was specific to preventing moderate to severe disease. They weren't really looking at, you know, mild, mild disease. So it's, you know, is it apples and oranges? I don't know if it's apples and oranges, but it might be, you know, golden delicious versus crab apples or something like that. A little is, is there uh, one of them that's better for old people or better for pregnant women than another, or, or does it get that specific? You know, when you look, um, across different ages, um, it seemed that, uh, so if you just take all ages, right, uh, the effectiveness across the three vaccines is very similar. When you look at whether or not, if you just take the older age group, so people over 65, for example, and you look at people over 65 in good health versus people over 65 who have kind of comorbid conditions, so high blood pressure, heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, et cetera. Um, the, the people, at least for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, there was it was a little less effective in that group, maybe 10 percentage points, less effective in the group that has medical problems compared to the older group that does not have medical problems. You know, if you look across different race and ethnicity, it's, it's uh, you know, it's similar. Um, none of these, it, it, it performs similarly. You know, the issue is when you start, when you start kind of looking into these very specific groups, the number of COVID cases that you're looking at to compare vaccine to placebo is so small that it's really just sort of observational and it's not, you can't really make any statistically uh, confident conclusions <laughs> because the numbers are so, so small. You know, regarding pregnancy, none of these trials actively enrolled pregnant women. Um, as a matter of fact, we would do pregnancy tests to make sure at the time of vaccination or at the time of injection to make sure that they were not pregnant. And we made sure that they had an ad adequate method of contraception and they agreed to use that method uh, so that they wouldn't get pregnant. Um, for both men and women, we get that information from both of them. Uh, that being said, <laughs> uh, we, you know, you do have people who get pregnant during the trial and, and uh, there has been no indication from the trials that uh, there was an adverse outcome in pregnant women who got vaccinated. If you look at, um, so there's a thing called VAERS, it's the Va Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It's collaboration between the FDA and the CDC and it is a, um, it's kind of a hotline, if you will, that people can call, whether it's just a regular person who got vaccinated or their doctor or, or you know, their medical provider, they can call to report um, uh, side effects or adverse events. 
And if you look at the most recent data that the FDA has shared, uh, there have been um, hundreds upon hundreds of women, uh, uh, I think close to, to 2,000 in total, who have been vaccinated with either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Uh, there have been uh, a handful of uh, uh, spontaneous abortions or miscarriage, but the rate is below what would be expected in the general population if you'd looked at the same number of, of people. So they're really, you know, and, and the last thing I'd say is they, the companies are actively starting uh, trials in pregnant women. So they're generating that that information in a very rigorous uh, rigorous way, which is good because we know that pregnant women who get COVID uh, can have more severe disease. They can have bad outcomes for their uh, unborn children, and so they're a population which, you know, kind of like you know H one N one population that you know would benefit from vaccination. So it's it's really important to prove that it's it's safe in that population and that it works so that, um, you know, it's accessible to them if they choose to be vaccinated. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate, about the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's talk about why some people are wary of getting vaccinated. I think there's some people who feel like the risk of the vaccine outweighs the benefit can you help us do that equation? I mean, what are the risks and, and what are the benefits? And is the risk of not being vaccinated greater than the risk of getting the vaccine? Yeah, so, you know, there are a couple of different categories of people, right? So there are the people who are absolutely vaccinate me as soon as possible. And then there are the people that are um, sort of on the fence, kind of like the wait and see sort of people. And then there are people that are absolutely not, no way, never. And, um, you know, there are, there are lots, and, and I think that people, you know, you might call them anti-vaxxers, that last group, right? And I think that people, you know, they make assumptions about people who are uh, anti-vaccine that um, sometimes are correct, but, but it's a little, people's reasons are a little more complex that so I really try to keep an open mind about people who say, well, I'm not getting vaccinated and 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 actually try to have a conversation to understand why and if there's any way that you know if there is misinformation that they can be that they can be better informed because you know vaccination is not just about you, right? Vaccination is about other people, right? A lot of people say, well, I'm not getting vaccinated because I'm young and healthy and not at risk. Well, number one, we see plenty of young people who get sick who have chronic problems afterwards up to 30 percent uh, and we've seen young people die so yes everyone is at risk of a bad outcome if you get uh, covid you really shouldn't play the the numbers um but you know the people that are kind of on the fence and so um you know i think there are two main things that they kind of focus on one is they're concerned about side effects they're concerned about well you know, am I going to get sick from this? And is this going to cause me permanent problems? And am I going to have to miss work? You know, um, you know, some people have, uh, um, and then other people have concerns about, well, you know, vaccines usually take a really long time and this did not take a long time. So they must've cut corners somewhere, right? So they have those, those thoughts. Um, the, you know, what I can tell you is that the, 
the safety profile of these vaccines, uh, you know, when you looked at the 70,000 people that they went to the FDA with, so that combines Moderna and Pfizer together. You know, they went to the FDA with over 70,000, you know, data from over 70,000 people, and the side effect profile was, as I mentioned, now there's been over 80 million people who've received at least one dose of either of those vaccines, and the safety profile is the same. It really hasn't changed, and I think that even as millions and millions of people were vaccinating over 2 million people a day, um, the safety profile is holding up, and that's, that's, you know, that's really good news. That's great. So let's think about how this vaccine, you know, why did it go so fast? Well, maybe we should think about why vaccines go slow in the first place. And the reason they go slow, and they could take up to 10 years to develop, um, there's a whole number of years that people have to try to discover uh, kind of prototypes for these vaccines, right? And it's a long process and lots of uh, experiments and lots of trial and error. Um, and so the discovery process can take a long time. And then there's, you know, as you go through the preclinical process where you're doing experiments and on the bench and in animals and, and then the clinical process where you're testing these vaccines in different people, you know, sizes of groups of people, it's really, really expensive, right? It can cost over a billion dollars to make a vaccine and every step along the way is more expensive than the last. And so these companies, they want to take, which I understand, they want to mitigate their financial risk. And so they, they, they take their time and they make sure that they have all of the information they need before they're going to write the check to do the next step of, of testing. And so it takes time. Um, the, other, uh, the other major thing of why it goes slow is because you might be working on a disease that does not happen with great frequency in a population. And so when you're trying to see if this vaccine works at preventing you know, disease X compared to the placebo, if disease X is rare, you're going to have to follow people for a really long time to collect enough cases to be able to say definitively, oh, this worked compared to the placebo. So now let's look at the COVID vaccine, vaccines that are being you know, licensed. All of these technologies, scientists have been working on for decades. So messenger RNA, they've been researching messenger RNA as a vaccine you know, a candidate for 30 years. And over the last 10 years, you know, five to 10 years, they've been doing vaccine trials in people against other diseases like Ebola or Zika, um, influenza, HIV. So thousands of people have received that messenger RNA vaccines before, and they were demonstrated to be safe in those people. But the vaccine never had a chance to get a big stage like this pandemic has unfortunately uh, Cause. So, so this is not new technology. They've been working on it for decades. The adenovirus 26 based vaccine, so the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, that's also been in tons of people. And um, it actually, they've had an Ebola vaccine licensed using that same technology. The second thing is that these companies took financial risk and the US government took financial risk. And so they basically said, you're going to be able to do things in parallel because we're in a pandemic and we need a solution fast. And so the sequential process, you're now going to do it in parallel. You're not going to take safety risk, but you're going to, for example, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on manufacturing a vaccine that may not be proven to work. And if it doesn't work, you're going to throw it out and you would have wasted money, but it's okay because it's a pandemic. So Pfizer funded a couple billion dollars 
on their own and Operation Warp Speed, we funded it, the taxpayer, right? Over $10 billion um, uh, to take that financial risk. The third thing is, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending upon your perspective, when they were doing these trials, there was so much COVID going on, so many people getting infected, so many people getting sick, that the companies were able to collect the number of cases they needed very, very quickly to determine did the vaccine work compared to placebo. So there, there's other reasons, but those are the you know three of the main reasons why this vaccine was able to go quickly. I, I think in the end though, to be honest with you, um, I think the bar has been uh, raised as it relates to our expectations for how long it takes to make vaccines or drugs. Because what I think we've shown is that when you have a technology that's ready uh, to advance, if you focus time, effort, and money on that, on that goal, uh, things can move a lot faster than they traditionally uh, than they traditionally have. So I think people's expectations are going to be a little bit different, um, you know, moving forward. And and for the FDA as well. I mean, I saw with Ebola and Zika, the FDA, um, the level of engagement that you know their scientists and their regulatory scientists had with the developers was really unprecedented. And I I, I think that what they've done uh, during uh, you know, during this pandemic, as it relates to vaccines, I think has been pretty, has been pretty remarkable. Their ability to review just so much information in such a short period of time and have open public hearings and deliberations and transparency. I, I think, I think when the dust settles on this, the FDA should be quite proud of what they've done. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back momentarily with more of our vaccine discussion with Dr. Stephen Thomas. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is back with your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, Upstate's Chief of Infectious Disease. Can any of these vaccines, because we've heard about some people having um, sort of side effects the day after, but can any of these vaccines actually give a person coronavirus, even a mild case of COVID? Uh, they cannot. Um, so, uh, a traditional type of vaccine approach is called a live virus vaccine, and it's like yellow fever, measles, mumps, rubella, uh, you know, MMR. Um, these are live viruses. They are weakened, and so that they will actually they'll replicate in a person, but they won't make them sick as they kind of stimulate the immune response. None of these vaccines are live viruses. These are not. Um, uh, you're not even you're you're only giving a small piece of a genetic code that is specific for a small piece of the virus, and it doesn't even replicate. Um, these are not replicating vaccines at all. So there is absolutely there is no way that these vaccines can give anyone COVID. Um, no one is contagious with anything <laughs> related to the vaccine after they uh, after they get it. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the benefits of these types of platform vaccine technologies is their, you know, is their, their safety profile. Well, I've heard that there's a fear out there that the vaccines might alter someone's DNA. Is that true? No. So, okay. you know, the messenger, yeah, the messenger RNA vaccines, they, they don't even enter 
the nucleus of the cell, right? So if you think of a cell like an egg, where you know the yolk in the middle is the nucleus, which is where a lot of the genetic material is, and the you know the the white part is the the cytoplasm. The activity is occurring in the cytoplasm um, for the messenger RNA vaccines, and for the um, uh, the adenovirus-based vaccines, so the viral vector vaccines, um, the activity occurs both in the cytoplasm and in the nucleus. But the way that these vaccines work, there really is no opportunity and no kind of plausible way that they would incorporate into our DNA or or anything like that. So, uh, so no. Well, what effect would the vaccines have on a person's fertility? Or is there an effect? So, you know, all vaccines are required to, you know, there's a whole section in the in the information packet that you need to provide to the FDA, which looks at, you know, reproductive uh, um, toxicity um, or, you know, potential toxicity on, you know, on an unborn fetus. And a lot, you know, that that information is made up of, you know, number one, is it plausible or not plausible that it could impact that? Uh, and two, they do a lot of animal experiments looking you know, looking at that. So, so these companies are required to, you know, provide the FDA proof that, um, you know, uh, to the best of their understanding that these vaccines will not impact a person's uh, fertility. And there really isn't, you know, I cannot think of, I cannot think of a plausible mechanism by which uh, these vaccines would somehow impact somebody's fertility. Um, and, you know, I guess the other thing is that when, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty good about following COVID related information that's out there. You know, we've had millions and millions of people around the world, women and men around the world uh, infected. There really have not been any um, reports or, or uh, clusters or concerns of people getting having fertility issues after surviving their COVID, uh, you know, their, their disease. And so, I, you know, right now, I think that that, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's always something that, you know, people should be on the lookout for. It's always something that, you know, be observant for, but, but I, I think that it was a, a theory that, you know, went, went, uh, went a little bit nuts on the social media and people were, trying to connect dots that really can't be can't be connected. Um, again, I mean, it's something that should be monitored, observed, the experiments should be done. Um, but right now, I don't see any indication that this is impacting anyone's fertility. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Stephen Thomas. In terms of vaccination, are there people who should not get vaccinated. Early on when this the first vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine was made available, we heard about some allergic reactions, but we haven't really heard much about that. Um, it, is that still a concern? So anyone who has a known allergy to any components of the vaccines should not be vaccinated. Those are really the only people that it's an absolute contraindication to vaccination is if you have a known allergy to any components of 
the lipid nanoparticles or the salts or sugars that are in the, you know, that are in the vaccine. Um, for everybody else, it's a, it's a risk benefit uh, uh, calculation and, and, and discussion. Um, you know, the issue with these allergic reactions. So, uh, you know, initially, um, you know, we were hearing reports out of the UK. Um, we heard some reports from, from the US, but like you said, you know, that was something that the FDA was looking at and safety groups were looking at, but it really trailed off to look like every other vaccine. As more and more people were vaccinated, the risk of having a allergic reaction, you know, went from 11 out of a million to five out of a million, and it'll probably end up being very similar to what most vaccines are, which is about one in a million people will have an allergic reaction. If you look at the people who did have allergic reactions, mostly women, mostly people that had known history of allergies, and even a couple of people that, um, you know, a couple of people that had had anaphylactic reactions to other vaccines decided to get vaccinated and they had they had reactions. So, uh, and what what about someone who had COVID? Um, should they get vaccinated? They should. They should get vaccinated. And the reason is, you know, not every COVID infection is created equal in terms of the immune response that someone's going to have, which means not every immune response is uh, protective or protective to the same degree. It's highly variable. Uh, we see this in the survivors that we follow here as part of our plasma program. Um, and so, you know, we want to make sure that everyone is protected. And so the best way to do that in a standardized way is to recommend that people get to people get vaccinated, even if they've had, you know, even if they've been uh, uh, inf infected. Now, the one caveat to that would be that if someone had a COVID infection and they were treated with one of the monoclonal antibodies, so either the, you know, the Bamlanivimab or the Regeneron product, uh, they should wait 90 days until they get vaccinated after getting that antibody. If they got infected and did not have the antibody, then my recommendation is they wait till they feel better and then they can be, you know, they can be vaccinated. Now, there's no vaccine for children yet. Can you tell us where things stand um, with the development of a vaccine that would protect kids and adolescents? So, with, um, yes, yeah, so all these vaccines were initially tested in uh, people ab above the age of 18. And then Pfizer and Upstate was one of the sites, went down to 16 and 17 year olds. And so their vaccine could be utilized in people down to 16 years of age. Pfizer then further decreased the age range down to 12 to 15. And again, Upstate participated in that. And so all of those people globally have been enrolled, a couple thousand 12 to 15 year olds, but that group remains blinded. Nobody knows who got what. Um, and I think that data is gonna be known relatively, you know, relatively soon. So that's something the FDA will have to, will have to chew on and make a decision of whether or not they think the Pfizer vaccine can be given to kids you know, to, uh, down to 12 years of age. And then all the developers are looking at, it's, it's a process where we, we call it age de-escalation. So you know, we start in older populations, prove the safety, prove the effectiveness, and then slowly march down in age uh, as long as you know, the vaccine will have a benefit in, in kids that age or we want to vaccinate kids that age, then 
you know, it's appropriate once you have safety data in adults to to start doing um, experiments in the younger in the younger kids. And I think it's pretty clear that, um, you know, I think there is a public health burden of um, from children getting infected and from children uh, potentially bringing infection home to you know the people who would do poorly if they got uh, if they got COVID. I mean, fortunately, most kids do fine when they get infected, but you know there are still deaths, and we still have this you know um, inflammatory syndrome that we see in kids, and they get very very sick. So. Uh, and, and we want kids to be able to stay in school and play sports and things of that nature. So I think that they're, a, you know, that's a very good population to to vaccinate, and and it's a good idea to to prove that the vaccine is safe in those kids. Is it typical to start uh, vaccine development for adults first? It is. Yeah, I mean, you want to, uh, you you know, in these early phase one studies, which are focused on safety, you typically want to start in adults. Who are uh, healthy. So usually we'll start in, you know, 18 to 50, 50 year olds for the most part uh, without any medical problems. And then once you get that initial safety signal, you can then start branching into the populations where the disease is most problematic. So, so over the coming months, we may hear more about kids down to the age of 12, and then more months after that, it may go lower. Yeah, that's my expectation. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate, where he's a professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.